0: This past week, um, we were witness to a most horrific tragedy at the Covenant School and Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, and I'm not going to go into any detail about that this morning, certainly don't want to try to politicize that. But church, we must recognize that there is a spiritual aspect to that that must be reckoned with. The shooter who identified herself as transgender had attended that Christian school some 16 years ago. And at some point in those 16 years, not only did she walk away from the faith that she was raised in, but became violently hostile and opposed to it. And as a result, the students, faculty, and staff at that school and church endured unspeakable suffering and tragedy. Here's another headline. Christian leader beaten and unlawfully imprisoned after helping a young woman escape quote, demonic influence. And that wasn't this past week. That was 2,000 years ago in the Roman city of Philippi, in the Roman colony of Macedonia. Hatred of and persecution against followers of Jesus is nothing new. It's been happening for thousands of years. In our passage in Acts 16 this morning Paul and Silas will free a slave girl from bondage and as a result of that they are beaten with rods and thrown in a jail cell with their feet in shackles. God frees them from the prison and in the process saves a jailer and his entire household through faith in Jesus Christ. Luke teaches his readers and us this morning in this passage that the way of gospel mission is going to include suffering. And he also reminds us that the gospel means freedom from bondage. All sorts of bondage. And that the only way of salvation is not by trying to fix that, but by believing in Jesus Christ as Lord, by grace through faith in Jesus. So let's read Acts 16. We will begin in verse 16 and read through the end of the chapter. As we were were going to the place of prayer... But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Roman citizens to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off of them. And gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. and departed. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We ask now that you would attend to the reading of your word by your Holy Spirit to give us not just an understanding of what it means, but so, Father, we might be formed by its truths so that you might be glorified in and through our lives. Do a work among us through the proclamation of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the narrative of this story is pretty straightforward. First, Paul casts a demon out of the slave girl. They go to the place of prayer, which was presumably the same riverside at which Lydia had been converted in the passage prior to this. And there they find a slave girl who, quote, had a spirit of divination. In the Greek, it's literally, she had a spirit python. It's the Pneuma Pathona. Pathona was a dragon in Greek mythology that was in charge of guarding the Oracle of Delphi. And so someone who had the Pneuma Pythona, who was possessed by that spirit Python, was said to have the same fortune-telling ability as the Oracle of Delphi claimed to have. So this is very pagan, very demonic, and she's possessed by this demon spirit. And she kept crying out through this demon inside of her. These men are servants of the Most High God, and they proclaim to you the way of salvation, which is great. She's preaching the gospel for them. That's, That's very true, right? So why is it then that Paul gets greatly annoyed at her? Well, it's because... Through the spirit, the demon inside of her, she is trying to connect the, the spirit python in her, the demon in her, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, as if they are one and the same, as if they are on the same team. And Paul would have none of it. And so Paul casts the demon out. But Paul and Silas, as a result of this, are beaten and thrown in prison. As we noted, the slave girl is the victim of a double bondage here. Not only is she in bondage to the demon inside of her, but she's also in bondage to the slave owners who literally own her as a slave. And through this spirit python that possessed her, she was able to tell the future, which meant great fortune for her owners. And so when that spirit python is driven out, that means that their source of income is now gone. And so... They're quite upset with Paul and Silas as a result of this. And they have them beaten and thrown in prison. But as we've seen already in the book of Acts, prison doors are not going to stop gospel mission. And so God sends a mighty earthquake. It shakes the foundation of the prison. The doors of the prison are open. And even incredibly, the shackles binding their feet are unlocked and loosened. And so when the jailer awakes... He finds the doors open. He finds the the stocks without feet in them. And he assumes that they're gone. And so he draws his sword to take his own life out of shame and fear. Because he's charged with guarding those who are in prison. But when he sees that the prisoners are still there, he falls down at the feet of Paul and Silas. And he asks them, what must I do to be saved? And he comes to faith in Jesus Christ the jailer is saved and baptized. He and his whole household, his whole household hears the word of God preached to them from Paul and Silas. They hear the gospel, respond to the gospel, are baptized into Jesus Christ. He goes from suicidal fear to overwhelmed by grace. And then Paul and Silas are released from prison. So That's the narrative of this story. It's powerful, it's amazing, it's astounding. But what is it that we learn from this passage? What is it that we're to take away from this passage? I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at three gospel lessons that we can pull from this story in Acts chapter 16 and talk about how we can apply those lessons to our lives today. The first lesson is, is an implication of the gospel. The second lesson is about the way of gospel mission. And the third lesson is about the means of salvation itself, or as we might put it, the good news of the gospel. So the first lesson is, that, is an implication of the gospel. And it's an implication that is a theme all throughout this passage. And that is that the gospel means freedom from bondage. The gospel means freedom from bondage. Dr. Luke seems to be trying to drive this point home to his readers in this passage. And it actually began with the passage that we looked at last week with Lydia. Lydia was in bondage as well. She was in bondage to her great wealth. And she was in bondage perhaps also to her works-based religion. Her performance-based religion as she sought to perform and do the and obey the, the law of Moses as a good proselyte ought to. But the Lord opens her heart to the truth, we're told. And that truth sets her free from that bondage. And in this, in this morning's text, we see three additional pictures of bondage. The slave girl, for one, we've already mentioned she was in double bondage both to the demon and to her slave owners. And God miraculously intervenes and frees her from that bondage by driving the demon out of her. Furthermore, at a a very critical moment of crisis in his life, the Philippian jailer finds himself in bondage to shame and bondage to fear. And the Lord delivers him from that bondage by grace through faith in Jesus. And even Paul and Silas here are obviously in a literal bondage. They are in a physical captivity as they find themselves in the innermost prison in this dungeon with their their feet in stocks shackled to the wall. And God intervenes here to free them from their captivity Luke wants his readers to be confronted with the fact, with the gospel truth, that the gospel means freedom from captivity and bondage. Now this is not only a theme in Acts chapter 16, it's a theme all throughout the New Testament. John writes and records Jesus saying this in John chapter 8. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, my followers. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The people answered Jesus, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave To sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. According to Jesus, sin enslaves and the gospel sets free. Sin puts us in bondage, and the gospel unshackles us from that bondage. Paul will later put it this way. In Romans chapter 8, the first four verses, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul says that the law could not save us. The law could never save us because we could never perfectly obey the law. And so the law simply shows us how desperately lost we are, how hopeless we are apart from Christ, how much in bondage to sin we really are. But Jesus did perfectly obey the law. And therefore, he met its righteous requirement. So that those who are in Christ, meaning those who have united to Christ by faith in him and what what he accomplished with his life, what he accomplished with his death, and in his victorious resurrection, those who unite to Christ by faith, for them there is therefore now no condemnation. Why? Because the law of grace has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And as Jesus said in John 8, if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. This is why Paul will be so astounded when he discovers that many in the churches in Galatia who have come to faith in Christ are so quickly walking away from that, and seeking to put back on a yoke of slavery to the law. He will say to them in Galatians 5.1, For freedom, Christ has set you free. Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, the law of grace has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Why then would you go back and put that yoke of slavery back on you again. It's as silly as a prisoner being set free and then voluntarily walking back into the jail cell. We would warn them, no, don't go back in there. You've been set free. Don't try to earn that which you've already been given by grace. See, sin puts us in bondage. Whether it's a sin of omission or a sin of commission, sin shackles us To keep on sinning. Apart from Christ. We find ourselves in bondage. And captivity to sin and death. And we have no hope. Of escaping from that bondage. We're bound. To our sin nature. We're doomed. To experience the full weight. Of the consequences of our sin. And there is no key. To that prison door. There's absolutely. No chance. For escape or pardon, that sentence against sin must be fulfilled or else the justice of God has no meaning. But Jesus came to set prisoners free. Jesus came to open prisoner doors. Jesus came to unloosen the shackles of captivity to sin and death. In Luke's gospel, I love this, in the fourth chapter chapter, Jesus has begun his his earthly ministry. He's been baptized by John. He's been been tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And then he makes this little side trip back to Nazareth, his hometown. And the same Luke that writes the book of Acts records of Jesus saying this in Luke 14, beginning in verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. So get the setting. It's in the synagogue. The people are reading from the law and the prophets. Jesus takes his turn to stand up and and read. And so verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is given to him. And so he unrolled it, and he found the place where it was written. He reads from Isaiah chapter 61, and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. A direct quote from Isaiah 61. A messianic um, prophecy in Isaiah 61. And then look at what happens. Verse 20. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He says, I'm this guy. This is who I am. And I have come to set the captives free. I have come to proclaim liberty to those who are oppressed and in bondage. This is what Jesus came to do. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus will secure the literal physical release of every christian that is in jail even paul himself will not be freed from prison in rome he will go straight from the cell eventually to the executioner's chopping block neither does it mean that every slave will be emancipated it's worth noting here that while the slave girl is freed from the bondage to this demon, her outward circumstances don't change. She's still a slave girl. She's still owned by others. So don't misunderstand this implication of the gospel. This doesn't mean that every door of every literal prison will be opened and will be shaken and opened by God. So don't take what happens here to to Paul and Silas as prescriptive for every literal circumstance in our lives. Instead, understand this is a theme of the gospel, an implication of the gospel, that the gospel means freedom from bondage. And so friend, I just want to ask you, do you find yourself in bondage this morning? Is there a sin that you are shackled to, that you are enslaved by. If there is a sin in your life that you feel hopeless to overcome and you are in Christ, you've united with Christ through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, then remember and hold firmly to the truth of Romans 8, 1 and 2 that we just read. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You are no longer shackled. You are no longer in captivity. He's set you free. Prior to faith in Christ, prior to regeneration, prior to him giving you new life in Jesus, you were shackled to sin. You were held in bondage to sin and death. But now, friend, brother, sister, you have been set free. You're not in captivity anymore. So don't voluntarily go back into the cell door and lock yourself up again. You've been set free. Are you enslaved to sin? Are you shackled this morning to maybe a performance mentality? Thinking that you've got to perform in order for God to accept you. Listen, you can never do enough good for God to accept you on the basis of that good because there's sin in you that must be dealt with and must be paid for and your good works will never be enough for that. If you're trying to come to Christ by works, your works will never be enough. If, you try, if you've come to Christ through faith in his life, death, and resurrection, then his blood is enough. It is enough by itself. A performance mentality, whether it's to try to earn the favor of man or to try to earn the favor of God, is a prison. It's a prison. Trying to please man is a hopeless endeavor. Believe me, I've tried. It's, a, it's like a moving target because what pleases one person doesn't please the other person, and what pleases this person today won't please them tomorrow. It's a moving target. It's incredibly debilitating and frustrating. It's a prison. Likewise, trying to please God apart from Christ is a prison. It's not a moving target like trying to please man is because the only way we can please God is to live perfectly according to the law of His Word. And that never changes. So it's not a moving target, but it is impossible. No man can please God by his works. Because we are, as, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, by our very nature objects of God's wrath because of our sin and rebellion against him. So trying to please God by our works is a prison as well. And quite frankly, it's a prison that many Christians find themselves in. Having once been saved by grace through faith, we now think that we've got to earn that grace by working for Him and serving Him. And so we find ourselves in this legalistic, performance-based mentality. And it's like being in a prison with your feet shackled to the wall. And there is no escape, except through the gospel, except through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel reminds us that those whom Jesus has freed are free indeed. So if you find yourself this morning in bondage to sin or shackled to a performance mentality with God, find freedom in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Christ, those once held captive to sin and death are set free. And those whom the Son has set free are free indeed. That's the first gospel lesson that we are confronted with in this passage. And the second one is that the way of gospel mission includes suffering. The way, the path, the journey of faithfully saying yes to Jesus when he says you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth is going to include suffering. This is a theme that is repeated throughout the book of acts and we see it here again in this morning's passage the apostles do a good thing here they free this slave girl from demon possession but the others in town who own her who are motivated by financial gain not by the well-being of a little child they're enraged by the good works of paul and silas and therefore out of vengeance Because of this hit to their wallet, they seek revenge. And so we're told that that they seize them and drag them away before the magistrates. So they literally seize them, they, they physically drag them away, then they bring false charges against them, we're told, saying that they're disturbing our city by advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Roman citizens to accept or practice. Look at what they're saying there. That they falsely accuse them of intolerance while exhibiting the very same intolerance that they so self righteously accuse Paul and Silas of having. Sounds very familiar. But the crowd buys it. Look at verse 22 and following. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them. They stripped them naked, and they gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And so having received this order, the jailer put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So once again, in the book of Acts, we are confronted with the reality that God's servants suffer persecution. This passage really gives us kind of a a mini-theology on suffering for the gospel. And when I say mini-theology, I don't mean a light or soft theology. This is a robust biblical theology. It's just found in a few short verses. But understand that this is not suffering in general, but rather this is suffering as a result of engaging faithfully in gospel mission. Paul and Silas aren't beaten and imprisoned because they are sitting at home on their lazy boy watching Fox News. No, they are beaten and they are imprisoned because they are helping people in the name of Jesus and they're telling people that they are in sin and the only way of escape from the punishment of that sin is through the gospel of Jesus Christ whom they had crucified back in Jerusalem. They're suffering persecution because they're faithfully engaging in gospel mission. So what are these six points here of Luke's mini theology on suffering? First, suffering is a reality for those who follow Jesus. I think we just need to come to grips with that. If we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to endure suffering. Suffering is a reality for those who follow Jesus. It was for Paul and Silas here, and it is for all those who truly desire to follow Jesus. Paul will later write to Timothy, who, by the way, is with Paul and Silas on this journey to Macedonia. He'll later write to him in his second letter to Timothy. Timothy, all those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And when Paul writes that to Timothy, he's in essence saying, Remember Philippi, Timothy. You were there. You saw it. Expect it. It's going to happen to everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. We saw from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus promised not if we will be persecuted, but when. He promises this to his disciples in Matthew 10. When he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be, beware of men. Why? For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and before the Gentiles. So, this very thing. Is promised to those who say they want to follow Jesus. So, friend, are you sure you want to follow Jesus? Are you sure you want to pay this price to suffer as a result of doing so? But in the midst of suffering, we're also promised God is with them in that cell. He's not absent, He's there even as they're being beaten with rods, even as they are stripped naked, even as they are thrown into the prison and shackled with their feet. See, God doesn't leave you when the going gets tough because it's then when His glory shines most brightly. So friend, if you're suffering as a result of gospel mission, if you're enduring suffering as a result of following Jesus, And I say this both to you and to our brothers and sisters who are serving on behalf of us all throughout the world. If you're suffering because of following Jesus, know that God has not left you. He's with you in the midst of that suffering. And because he's with you, we can worship him there in the midst of the suffering. Church, I am astounded by verse 25. Absolutely astounded. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening. This had been a bad day for ministry in Philippi, and things have gone from bad to worse it couldn't get much worse. And there was no glimmer of hope on the horizon for them. And yet they were praising God. They were singing hymns to God in that cell. And we should note that, as is often the case with uh, sequential numbering, verse 26 comes after verse 25, not before it. See, it's not until verse 26 when the earthquake comes and the the foundations of the prison are shaken and the doors are opened and the shackles are loosened. None of that has happened yet in verse 25. In verse 25, Paul and Silas are alone in the innermost dungeon with their feet shackled to the wall still probably licking their wounds from the beating that they had just endured at the hands of the magistrate earlier that day. And they're singing. And they're praising God. Now, a bad or short-sighted or soft theology of suffering might lead someone in this kind of predicament to feel abandoned, betrayed, and alone instead of hymns of praise there might be grumbling and complaining god why did you do this god why did you leave me in this cell to rot i was serving you well lord i was making a difference for your kingdom why have you now sentenced me to prison but a robust theology of suffering a biblical theology of suffering leads one to worship even in the midst of the storm you ever heard someone say that after they had gone through a season of suffering that they can look back and they can see the thumbprint of God they can see what God was doing and that God had walked with them through that And they can praise God for that suffering. Doesn't it just blow your mind when you hear that? As astounding as that is, that's not the picture that we have here in Acts 16. We don't have a picture here of praising God after the suffering. But while the storm is still raging on, there is no glimmer of hope And yet they are praising God. That kind of of heart of worship can only come from a heart that is not only transformed by the gospel, but is formed by gospel truths. That God is with us in the midst of suffering and that He has a purpose for it. And that's the next part of of Luke's mini-theology on suffering. That God has a purpose for it. God uses suffering to accomplish his purposes. You see, not only did Paul and Barnabas not know that the doors of the prison were about to be opened, but they had no way of knowing that God would use this as a means of saving the jailer and his entire household. And so we go back to Romans 8. This time a little bit before what we read earlier. Verses 28 and 29. And we know, meaning we're convinced, and we hold firmly to this truth that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Or as we like to say, God works all things together for our good and his glory. And we usually don't have a clue about how he's doing it or how he could possibly work this thing out for his glory, much less our good. And that's why faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Because if we were to see with our physical eyes how everything was going to work out for our good and his glory then it would not require faith to follow Jesus. But in his divine wisdom, he doesn't lay out for us the how and the why. He simply asks us to trust and obey. And that's what Paul and Silas do. Trusting that somehow, way, God was going to work this out for his glory and their good, even though they can't possibly imagine at this point how and why. God uses suffering in the lives of his people to accomplish his kingdom purposes which friend that means he's got a purpose for your suffering and just as Paul and Silas could not possibly have known God's purpose for their suffering God in his sovereign and divine wisdom has not seen fit to lay out the how and the why for you in the midst of your suffering but you can know that he's got a reason You can know that He's got a purpose and it's for our good and His glory even if we struggle to believe that. (laughs) Two additional points in our mini-theology on suffering that Luke gives us here. First, suffering is often the arena where God's power is displayed most predominantly. Suffering is often the, the arena where we see God's power show up in magnificent ways. Think about this. If God had not seen fit to have his servants, Paul and Silas, in this Philippian jail, then we would not have this amazing story of this miraculous and supernatural prison break. And, friend, if it were not for the bondage of our own sin and captivity to death, we would not have the miraculous and supernatural story of a Redeemer who left a perfect heaven to come and live perfectly for us, perfectly obey the Father, and then go to the cross and die in our place and rise three days later, proving that His sacrifice was accepted for our sins. We wouldn't have that if we had not been in captivity to sin in the first place. Suffering is often the arena where God's power is displayed most predominantly. And then lastly, deliverance from captivity Gives us greater confidence in God's providential care of us. What happens to Paul and Silas after they're released? Well, Paul realizes that the magistrates have, in fact, broken the law by having Roman citizens punished without a trial. And so, on the heels of God miraculously and supernaturally breaking them out of prison. They now have the confidence in God to demand that the magistrates come back to them personally and apologize to them. It's astounding, really, when you think of it, what they demand here. Listen, when God walks with us through a season of suffering, it gives us a much greater confidence that he will walk through with us through every and any season of life. And this can only lead to an increase in our faithfulness to his mission. So Christian brother, or sister, the way of gospel mission that we've been called to includes suffering. So don't be surprised when it arrives. And remember that God is with you in the midst of it, and therefore you can praise him in the midst of it. And you can be reminded that he's got a reason for it, a redemptive holy reason that was set before the foundation of the world and so trust him trust him in the midst of that storm our third and final gospel lesson from this passage and we'll close with this lesson this morning is that the means of salvation we're told here is to believe in the lord jesus christ that is the means of salvation as a result of what happens with this earthquake and the prison door is being opened and the shackles being loosened. The jailer, as a result of what occurs, recognizes his need to be saved. But listen to how Luke puts it in verse twenty seven and following. When the jailer woke, which means that he slept through the earthquake, right? So he woke up now. He he, he woke up. It wasn't the earthquake that made him fearful. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. It was customary in that day, in the case of an escaped prisoner, for the jailer to now be culpable for the punishment that that prisoner was going to be paying. So now it was up to him. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Here's the question. Why is he trembling with fear at this point in the story? Why is he trembling with fear here? It wasn't for fear of the earthquake. He slept through that. It wasn't the fear of the magistrates ex- ex- executing him in the place of the prisoners because at this point, he's now seeing that Paul and Silas and all the other prisoners are still there. So why the trembling with fear here? I think it's because he recognizes that the God that Paul and Silas were speaking about, the God through whom they had cast out the demon from the slave girl in town, which started this whole thing, The jailer realizes here that Paul and Silas's God was real. And he wasn't ready to answer to him. And he recognizes that he needs to be saved. And so he asks them in verse 30: Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And their answer is simple: Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Not Start attending the worship services at First Baptist Church, Philippi, and you will be saved. Not start tithing regularly and you'll be saved. Not get baptized and you'll be saved. Not be a better person and you'll be saved. No, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. He wants to know what he must do to be saved. And Paul and Silas say it's not about doing, it's about believing. And remember that in the Greek, the word... For believe and the word for faith are the same root word. Believe is the verb form, and faith is the noun form. And so he says here, the verb form, believe in the Lord Jesus, or we could say, if faith were a verb, faith in Jesus. In other, in other words, put your faith in Jesus Christ, which, which means put your hope, put your trust, put all of your faith In in being saved in the finished work of Jesus. In his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection. Put your faith in Jesus as your only hope. Put your faith in Jesus as what? As Lord, he says. No longer trusting yourself as Lord. No longer trusting yourself as the ruler of your life. But trusting Jesus as the ruler of your life. Believe in Jesus as Lord and you will be saved. And this is the gospel message that led to Paul and Silas being beaten and imprisoned. This is the gospel message that frees sinners from their bondage to sin and death. And it's good news because it means that anyone from any background can be saved and will be saved if they place their faith in Jesus Christ no matter if they are a wealthy merchant or a poor slave girl or a blue-collar jailer. Anyone, anywhere can be and will be saved if they believe on Christ for salvation. As Peter said back in Acts 4, when he was addressing the Sanhedrin after being imprisoned for healing a lame beggar outside the temple, there he said, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Friend, if you're here this morning, you've not come to faith in Christ. Number one, like this jailer, recognize that you need to be saved. Recognize that apart from Christ, you have no answer when you go to stand before a holy God. And then secondly, believe on Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Put your faith in his life, death, and resurrection as your only hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel truths that we learn from a passage like this. Father, we are so thankful for the redeeming blood of Jesus, the atoning blood of Jesus, that by grace through faith in Christ alone, you have secured our release from prison. You have secured our being unshackled from bondage and captivity to sin and death. Now, by your grace, we've been freed. Now we are no longer held in captivity. Lord, help us to live in that freedom and not to go back into that cell and act as if we're still shackled. Help us as the people of God live free for those whom the Son is set free are free indeed. Lord, help us as we seek to follow Jesus be ready for seasons of suffering. And in those seasons of suffering, remind us through the, the story recorded by Luke here that you're still with us, that we have the privilege and the honor and the opportunity to praise you, not just when it's good, but when it's bad. We have the opportunity to praise you in the midst of the storm, even before dawn breaks. And Father, we pray for those among us in this room, in our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces and community who are far from you, who've never trusted in Jesus Christ. God, we ask that you would remove that heart of stone as we talked about last week and replace it with a heart of flesh. Grant them faith and repentance to believe in the Lord Jesus and thus be saved. We pray this all.